0: Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players, by badminton players, proudly brought to you by Villan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials, or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff
1: and Henry. And we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description.
0: For this episode of the podcast, we welcome back our guest from episode 30, Ben Beckman. He is a former English men's singles player and played for his country at the 2008 Thomas Cup Finals. He was previously working with Jonathan Tang at Swift Badminton, a very well-known badminton YouTube channel. In the time since we last spoke to him, there have been many changes on his part, which we'll be discussing today. And includes how he's finished up with Swift Badminton and has become an influencer for the BWF. You may very well have seen his videos which were posted on the BWF's Instagram channel. But we'll let him tell the story. So let's welcome Ben onto this episode of the Badminton podcast. Welcome Ben. Thanks for having me back. So Ben, first question before we get into all of it, there's plenty to discuss today. We actually have a question from Instagram, one of our followers. Michaela Ranola. We don't actually know if Mikaela was asking this question of us or of you, but we're going to answer it together, shall we? So Ben, how's everything and how are you?
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm doing okay. Obviously, the current situation in UK, it's on lockdown again, which means a big part of... you know The first lockdown was quite tough. Financially, it was one of the big things. You can't earn any money. There was no coaching, no nothing. So I slowly saw my savings being whittled down. So when uh, this lockdown was announced, I was a little bit concerned, but obviously I've got a few things that I've managed to line up. I'm working, I'm doing some coaching at school and schools remain open. And obviously, as already mentioned, I'm working with BWF, which brings in a little bit of money. So overall, I'm pretty good. I'm feeling very positive. The videos that I'm working on are getting better and better. My process is becoming more streamlined. And I'm also a lot healthier than when we last spoke. So in terms of my weight, my fitness, everything. So overall, I say I'm feeling pretty good.
1: (laughs) Awesome. That's a good response. And just in case Michaela, you are asking Henry and I, so Jeff, myself, we're doing well. At the time of recording here, we are coming out of lockdown. Very slowly, but we are, we can move more than five kilometers from our home. And then it was extended to 25 kilometers and now we don't have restrictions within our state, but the border is still closed at the moment. So lots of fun for us, but we still lots of restrictions on badminton. So there's no badminton yet, except for under 18s, because for some reason under 18s don't spread it as much as adults. So
2: (laughs) So, it was the same here before they initiated this full lockdown. (laughs) <laughs> At the clubs, you couldn't have adult group sessions, but you would have child, you could have junior
1: group sessions. It made their hygiene much better than adults, which is oh, yeah, real, of course. Right?
0: <laughs> Henry, from you? From me, something a bit more personal, I guess. If you're watching this video, which you may not be, but I've actually moved home recently. So this is my new badminton podcast, Volant Office, that I'm speaking out of. Uh, it's, it's empty. There is a table and a laptop here right now. So (laughs) it's all you need. (laughs) Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I'm still living out of boxes at the moment, but things are going well on my end as well. Mm. So back to you, Ben, let's talk about, you know, where we left off. I think it was about a year ago that we spoke. So much has changed. So I think it's probably best to sort of go through a bit of a, overview of of what's happened and then we can hopefully sort of pick your brain a little bit about what's been going on and what your thoughts are about the current state of badminton
2: well not long after we spoke obviously on that podcast i was talking about or the future for swift our plans what we were going to try and do unfortunately not long after we spoke um jonathan decides to call an end towards swift i think the main thing was we were finding it very difficult to find a venue that would allow us to film the kind of videos that we wanted to. The club that we were using suddenly set up all these rules and we were complying but then they kept, seemed to be pushing it back further and further so we were getting nowhere. We approached another club and they took months to get back to us and then they were having all these different meetings and all this, it just seemed to go round and round and in circles we never seemed to get anywhere. We then found a club that was very interested and were allowing us, but there was no court availability. So it it seemed that no matter what we tried, we couldn't really film too much. On top of that, obviously financially to do your own business is quite difficult. And that's all that Jonathan was, was using as his income. So it became a little bit financially unviable. And I think that coupled with the fact that we couldn't create content, made Jonathan start to have some health concerns he wasn't particularly well for a good period. He was continuously tired and run down, even if, he, you know, he was sleeping for. You know, I don't need to go into too many of those kind of details, but I think he just decided that it needed to come to an end, which was mm-hmm. it was sad for both of us because he was so interested and invested in making it work. When I came on board, I was really keen. I thought there was so much potential within it, but it wasn't meant to be. And it turned out to be a good decision for both of us, although we didn't see it right away. Obviously, after Swift stopped, then it was kind of leading into the lockdown and coronavirus and all that kind of stuff, which added to a, a whole new host of things. I suddenly was without a job. I was just doing private coaching, which I wasn't doing too much of because I wanted to invest more of my time in Swift. Mm-hmm. So I had to kind of see myself rebuilding that. But then when lockdown happened, that was obviously, I couldn't earn any money. So I started to kind of get feel the financial squeeze. But within the lockdown, I actually got Jonathan contacted me out of the blue. And he said, I've been contacted by BWF. And they're quite keen on creating this kind of influencer role, someone to make short videos, to spark interest, spark debate, all this kind of stuff. And they'd initially contacted him because obviously he was the face of Swift. And obviously, they'd been looking around YouTube for people that had done this sort of thing. But he had already kind of taken on board another project so he could invest his time. But he, you know, nicely put my name forward, saying that I was a big part of the creative drive behind Swift. And so I got in touch with this guy. He's not actually from BWF, but he works for a company that's working for BWF that deals with the social media side of things. We met, we spoke, I did a couple of trial run videos for him. He really liked what he saw. He's put me onto like a six-month contract to kind of create weekly videos. And then from there it's just kind of now now you're starting to see the videos online. They're starting to gain traction. So something that the start of the year started really badly, you know, a lot of bad news, but as we're reaching the end of this year, it's been a bad year for a lot of people in the world, but it's starting to actually, I'm starting to see a bit of light and I'm starting to see good things
1: happen. That's awesome. Congratulations first on your role with BWF. I've personally seen the videos. And I do enjoy them. I do make sure I watch them. I saw the Lindan tribute. I saw the top three plays from the Denmark open. And that was where you talked about how you were glued to your TV because it was so good that badminton was back. And that was me when I saw that there was live badminton on YouTube. It was just so good just to be able to watch live badminton again. If we rewind to Swift and you're saying about the court hire, I'm really interested to see with the court hire and the booking of the courts for your videos, what was the major obstacle to get the courts?
2: Well, initially, we were working outside the club that I was employed by. And it's a members club. So it's run by you know a board that are members. And things have changed. What led to me leaving, there was quite a few issues with myself and the board and the badminton committee. I don't want to go into all yeah. that. You don't need to know. But let's just say there was some tension between myself and them. Didn't leave on bad terms, but... I think they kind of held it a little bit against me. So when I was hiring courts, there was a filming policy in place at the club. But then the committee or board wanted to change that because they wanted all these different rules and basically to kind of halt up. It felt like to halt my progress with this. So for a long time, we couldn't film there. I mean, Jonathan literally lived around the corner from this club and he got that place. So we could film there. So then we were scrambling to try and find somewhere else. We contacted another club. And they wanted to kind of go by the book. There were so many of these rules or something they felt they had to go through. And we were just... They thought we were some major TV production, I think, when we first asked them. So they were wanting a contract. They wanted... that—you know It was a crazy amount of money. We just wanted to hire a court. We'll be respectful to the members that are playing. And we don't do silly things if there's people next to us. And we just want to film some fun videos to help Badminton. And we felt like we were banging our head against a wall. We couldn't get anywhere there aren't too many badminton clubs in England. It's not something, you know, a lot of places they play out multi-purpose sports halls. So it's hard to come by by courts and in big sports centers, there's even more rules and more loopholes and more things to jump through. So it just became very, very difficult for us to film anything. So yeah, no, that's pretty much what happened. A lot of these clubs, they just, they wanted this, they wanted that. And I honestly, I still now, I think, why couldn't you just let us have a court and... We'll be respectful and if we're not you can kick us out so yeah we'll
1: pay court higher, use the court exactly. film a bit of badminton and yeah
2: we were even willing to hire the hall out so if there was three or two courts in a hall to hire both of them so yeah. they would get the still the court cost so there was no one else there but even that was they wanted this xyz it just it was a bit of a nightmare to try and negotiate with these people and then badminton clubs in england most of them are run by the members of that club so the process is so slow because they, oh, okay, so we met last month. This is what we think we can agree on. We'll get back to you next month when we meet again. Yeah. It's like, Why can't you just talk to them today? And then you get to the next month and then it'd be like, okay, but we need to decide on this and that'll be next month. And it just, it went on like that forever. And it was just infuriating.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it lingered on for much longer than it needed to be when it was really just a conversation around court hire. Exactly. Luckily for Jeff and I, when we had the opportunity to be out and about recording, we did essentially just hire out one or two courts, depending on if it was busy. And, and we just asked them politely if we could record and that was that. So we don't fully appreciate the challenges, but I can imagine it, it would have been incredibly stressful for you.
2: It was. There was actually, like I said at the start, there was one place. It's a one-court hall and it's actually down the road for me. We filmed some of the videos there and they were really accommodating. They gave us a key so we could come in after hours. If we wanted to just, or come in really early. But they don't have their booking processes. So if you book a court there, you can pretty much keep it all year. So there was very little time during the day. So the only time we could film was either we wanted to go in all night or really early morning. And that wasn't just not, it was just too difficult to do that on a consistent basis. Maybe for Jonathan, because he had no other responsibilities in terms of he was living on his own when you've got a, a wife and a boy who goes to school like that it's a difficult thing to try and do definitely i think that was one of the big reasons why swift ended up ending because we just couldn't get out the content because to be big on youtube you've got to be out there put out videos twice a week every week and that was just becoming so so difficult to do so yeah, you know, it wasn't to be
1: that's a really tricky situation and i guess from say, motivational speeches or inspiration and everything like that, you always hear about the stories about the grind and getting through these things, but you don't really hear so many stories about when it's the right choice to get out of something, right? Everything's always about staying, never give up, perseverance, determination, etc. You'll get there in the end, which is true. But then sometimes you need to just cut your losses and move on to the next thing because one door closes, another door opens, right? Exactly what's happened for you.
2: Exactly what's happened. And also for Jonathan, he moved away. We still keep in contact from time to time. And he's, from the sounds of it, he's doing pretty well for himself. So I think in the end, it was definitely a good move for both of us. Although I didn't feel it right away. But now I can look back and think, well... I'm sure he didn't either. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But if it wasn't for my short, brief time on Swift, I wouldn't have had this opportunity that I've got now with the BWF. So, you know, everything happens for a reason. So it's worked out pretty well so far.
1: Yep. I think this is the right time to quote Steve Jobs here. And you probably know the quote I'm going to say, which is along the lines of you can never connect the dots moving forwards; You can only connect the dots looking backwards. You just have to trust that the dots will end up connecting to each other. So yeah, your time with Swift and with Jonathan just meant that you, you got to know him. You learned about the video scene. How much video experience did you have before that?
2: Uh, I did an A-level media course when i was 18 if you think that i did swift when i was well i started when i was 31 that's quite a gap and i didn't really do anything in between so swift gave me not only the chance and to get recognized but gave me a chance to learn how to create the kind of videos that i'm creating and jonathan was really good he always gave me tips on how to make them better he was very very good at picking up little things like if i put a video out He'd be like, just change this for that, and it will make such a difference. And it was always, he was always seemed to be spot on. He was very good like that. And even when I was doing some of the trial runs for BWF, I would send them to him and ask for his input. Yeah. So he was giving me plenty of ideas. So even now, if I, I mean, I haven't for the last few I've done, but I know that if I want to get his input, I can always ask him and he's always happy to help. So mm-hmm. he's helped me massively. And it was, yeah, a great thing to be a part of Swift. Yeah. Uh, and it's led me to where I am now
1: we might have to send you some videos as well cuz we're not
0: very good at that. <laughs> we get your input on our videos as well.
2: <laughs> I'll be happy to. I mean, I don't mind. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, let's take that moment to thank Jonathan. If he's listening, Jonathan, if you're out there and you're listening, thank you from us as well as Ben. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, so let's talk about your role at BWF now, Ben. What does your everyday look like now that you are doing videos for the you said once every week you're doing videos like how many videos and and what kind of videos are you doing so i have to produce say one
2: minute to two minute video kind of anything that can spark a discussion i mean obviously when at the moment we're in a bit of a weird time because there's no tournaments but generally the idea was that it'd be kind of reaction videos to tournaments what's happened a little bit like what you saw with the denmark open video that's what they want more of but obviously currently there isn't really much tournament play happening if any so I've been producing a lot of videos, just kind of get an easy premise, whether it's if you could make your ideal doubles combinations from any player ever, who would you pick? I would then give my own ones, why? And then obviously offer the the question out, out to the viewers. So very quick, short, sharp videos. My day to day is when I started, it took me a few hours, a couple of maybe even a day or so to make a video, whereas now I can do it in a couple of hours cause you get an idea of what you're doing. And you kind of, I know where to set up the camera. I know what to say. I can bang it out very, very quickly. And you get very streamlined. But although I've only got to make one video, I'm trying to make a lot of archive videos that no matter when they were to go out, they would still be relevant. The guy I'm working with, the guy I kind of report to, he calls them evergreen videos because they're they're never going to go out of date. They're always going to be available. So I'm constantly thinking of ideas, little things that, I find interesting, and hopefully that people watch them will find interesting, a little bit entertaining. So, a lot of my time is spent not just doing them, but actually thinking of them, writing a little script, going through YouTube or the now got access to the archives of BWF, going through loads of old matches and seeing if I can, or Wikipedia to get results, see if I can see any patterns or interesting things that I can talk about. Mm -hmm. Because I don't want to just be like, "This is one of the best matches ever," blah blah blah. I want there if there's a story there then I want to be able to tell that in a very short time and keep it entertaining. So I'm always looking for that. And that can take a little bit of time, but it's more interesting to me.
1: That's cool. I've got a topic for you that just came to my head. The right and left-handed doubles combinations are their results better than the, the both right-handers or the both left-handers. Not many both left-handers, but you know that right-left combo?
2: Yeah. The right-left combo is usually seen as uh, <laughs> you've got the the four legendary players for singles you've got Taufik Gaida Linda mm-hmm. and Chong Wei and then you've got the what they I think some people call the five legendary doubles pairs so you've got Leon Day and Jung and then you've got Kai Fu left and right Ku and Tan left and right Bo Mogensen left and right yeah, and obviously Asan and Setuan they're both right but there's three out of that five that are left and right so I think there's definitely something there <laughs>
0: to, be,
2: to be said about that
0: we'll see this video <laughs> in the next couple of weeks won't we yeah <laughs>
1: I'll definitely give it some thought and
2: see if I can make anything
0: from it.
1: <laughs> awesome. So will there be opportunity for you to travel as well to tournaments themselves? Is that on the card?
2: Yeah, well, obviously when tournaments happen and travel happens. This job, this kind of making these little videos, I'm not sure that that's going to need travel. I think they're going to want to minimize cost. But we spoke before this video about something I did yesterday for BWF where they're trying to rehash because we did no badminton new stuff. They're trying to kind of take some old stuff and make it relevant. So they've got some commentators like Jill Clark, Steven Pedersen, Morton Frost, and they've got some former players like Rexy Meineke and Bong Chun han And then they've got some current players, think Michelle Lee, Gronya, Somerville, Kim Ash. you know, there's quite a few of them. And they're basically being asked their opinions on influential players from the past decade. And the guy that I was doing it with is the one who's in charge of the live production of BWF events. And he creates the BWF Unlimited, that weekly show that I'm sure a lot of people watch. And after we did that, he seemed pretty pleased with what I did. And he asked if I'd ever be interested in color commentary, if that's something I'd ever kind of considered being a color commentator or that kind of stuff. And I'd given it some thought, but not really too much. And obviously, if I was to kind of get myself involved with that, that, that side of things would obviously involve some traveling. But as far as creating these videos, they can be done from the comfort of my own home. So I don't think there'll be need to be too much traveling. There'll be none really for that. But maybe if the commentary thing ever was to come about, then that might involve some.
0: I suppose because you can do your videos from everywhere, you could fly to Bali or fly, exactly. fly somewhere <laughs> in a resort. That, that is the dream. Yeah. That's
2: what I'm hoping at the moment. The money is nowhere near enough to be able to live like that. But <laughs> if it ever got to a stage where I could just do videos, I'm not sure England would be the place to stay. I think I'd try and find a tropical <laughs> island. My wife would love that.
1: Chocolate and Bali
2: wow. would, yeah. would be definitely one of the places we've always talked about, oh, if we could retire or if we could just work from anywhere, one of those places I mean, she's Indonesian as well. So that really helps. So that would be... Oh, our,
0: really? Okay. Would,
2: yeah. Should, that would be the place to be. And that's somewhere that we would love to go. <laughs> and a lot of the b they're based in Malaysia, Singapore. So what's to say that isn't where I could end up? Fingers crossed. We
0: said it first on the Badminton Podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When we bring you back next time... You'll be, <laughs> you have palm trees in the background. You'll be talking to us from Bali. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sipping a cocktail and all that kind of stuff.
0: <laughs> so Ben... When we're talking about your role at BWF now, what is it that you actually like? What do you enjoy about the work that you're doing at the moment?
2: Well, first and foremost, I've grown up around balance and I absolutely love the sport. I used to watch plenty of tapes, DVDs of matches before YouTube was around. And then when YouTube came on, watching the live events. And now I'd always, if there's a tournament on, I'd hook it up to the TV and watch it all weekend. So to be involved with something like that is, you know, within a sport that I love is great. I also, when I, finished school, one of the things I was quite interested in, and actually this is when I finished my Banton career, was actually media and video production. So it's kind of combining two things that I really enjoy doing. It's also very interesting because they're very quick, short videos, and it's something that's exciting to me. So I get to combine making fun, entertaining, informative videos about the sport that I love. So really, I can't ask for more. It's not something I get bored of, and I don't think I ever would. In fact, it's something I want to do more and more and more of.
1: Awesome. How does it feel to be an influencer? I guess the in-trend word these days is, hey, I'm an Instagram influencer. I'm an influencer. Uh, So so how does it feel to be labeled an influencer officially?
2: (laughs) I think if I was in charge of what name I'd give myself, I'm not sure I'd use influencer. I think maybe I'm a little old. (laughs) Isn't it? Most influencers are in the early 20s. I'm not that. So, But I don't know what I think about being an influencer. I think it's obviously a bit too early at the moment <laughs> to tell whether I have any influence whatsoever. <laughs> I probably'd say I have none at the moment. But it feels like a youthful term to me. When I think of influence, I think of young people doing silly videos and all this kind of stuff. I'm not sure that's necessarily me. But if I get people to enjoy banton and and learn a little bit more and be entertained and get more people interested in the sport then I'll happily take that title.
0: I suppose we can make it more formal and call you a key opinion leader, a KOL, <laughs> yeah. if, if that's more suitable for your age.
2: <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That sounds a bit more my uh, demographic, doesn't it?
0: But that's okay. We'll stick with influencer for now. As a BWF influencer, Ben, what is your favorite video that you've made so far?
2: Oh, Okay. There are a few that I've made that haven't made it out. So if I was to base it on the ones that have gone out, I really like the Leon Day video. Because for me, that summarizes that that's something that's been more interesting. So you take a premise of someone who's really good, he achieved something that no one else has, the three times, well, number one, with three different partners, it's incredible. And then you kind of go into why, you know, I give my opinion on why. It's not just a kind of, here's my top three moments, or here's the best things that happened or whatever. There's like a, a little story within it, so I really enjoyed making that video. I was very happy when it came out that I managed to kind of create this informative, interesting story within the two-minute time frame. And also, I just think that it just had a really nice flow to it. So when I watched that one, I'm like, "That's kind of where I want to kind of as a baseline. I want to get better from there." There are some videos that haven't made it out yet that may be better, but. For the ones that people might have seen, who knows what other videos would have gone out by the time this is broadcast. But for me, the Leon Day video is my favorite one.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm not sure if you guys have seen that one.
1: I've seen the Leon Day one, but I don't think it's the one that you made. Okay. Are you speaking in it?
2: Yeah, no. So it's similar to the Lindan one. It's on their okay. It's either on their Facebook. I think it's on their Facebook channel, not their Instagram. Because oh, that's maybe. Some, wow. some videos, they put some on Instagram they put some on Facebook. So most of my videos will start on Facebook because they're obviously a bit longer. And then I think they do put some of them, like the Lindan one and the Jana Jorgensen video. And I think one or two others have been on Instagram, which I think is where it gets more views. But Facebook is a bit better when the videos are the length that I make them. So check it out. You need to watch that one.
1: Yeah, I will. After this. after this, you can watch it.
2: But yeah, no. Yeah, Leon Day, if I had to choose. But to be honest, I'm pretty pleased with all of them. I think they're getting slightly better as I make each one, so that's promising moving forward.
0: Yep, great. I'm sure they are, and uh, we look forward to continuing to watch some of your creativity, Ben. And if we do have any ideas, like Jeff did earlier, we will send them your way as well.
2: Oh, I'm always open to suggestions. You know, it doesn't matter how silly they are or how serious they are. We'll, I think, any idea, any suggestion can be made into something. I'm sure.
1: And look, for the listeners out there who, because Ben, at the start you did talk about how you've been able to develop your system for editing, so taking your videos, editing your videos, and for those out there who want to start documenting more of their things or do a bit of video editing, would you be able to share some of the key things that you've found have really helped you in your filming and your editing process? Now just a quick word from our sponsors. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Volant. Henry and I founded Volant out of our own frustration with the confusing, bright and unsightly clothes we saw in badminton all over the world, but now it's so much bigger than that. Our mission is to simplify the badminton journey and show the world how incredible badminton is. So make sure you check out our badminton basics at VolantWear.com and follow us on our socials at VolantWear.
2: Okay, yeah. For me, the big one, if you're doing videos like I'm doing, where you kind of have to marry up your, what you say with some visual, because it can't just be you on the screen, because people will just get a bit bored of that. No matter how interesting you are, if there's not something changing every five seconds maximum, then people are going to shut off. So I guess tip number one would be, unless it's, you're doing a longer style video, where it's a bit more leeway, don't have things that lingering for too long. So always trying to change up what you're saying, the visual that's on the screen, all that kind of thing. Even as simple as just putting a bit of text suddenly on the screen would kind of spark a bit more interest. And secondly, what I found has helped for me is when I come across, when I think of a story or topic, I would actually would start looking at videos and the stuff that can, I can marry up with it. There's nothing worse than you having this really good script and you're talking brilliantly And when you try and edit and put something at the top, there's nothing. There's nothing to use on top of it. Or there might be a video that's not existing, or you can't find the right thing. So I like to kind of get a good idea of what I want to say, write it out, and then go through clips, download them or save them. So I know exactly how to match it up because that makes it so much faster. If you just kind of write, there's a few times at the start where I'd have a script, I'd film it, I'd edit it down, and then I'd try and get the clips on top and it wouldn't work. So I had to almost refilm to change what I'm saying and refilm it and it would just end up taking more time. So if you can kind of focus, think of the visual you want to display and show as well as what you're trying to say and get those together before you even come to the edit process, you know, it's not going to be perfect because there's always got to be some wiggle room, but that would definitely streamline the process. That would be my tip for streamlining it and then just make it exciting. Just keep things changing. Don't kind of, Keep things on the screen for too long because people will just, especially on social media, they will just shut off within a few seconds if you're not if you're not giving them something more. It's a shame, but that's the way it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just a competition for your attention, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and exactly, you need to kind of keep it exciting, keep the viewer hooked. Especially people that badminton fans might be. I know this is what they're targeted at these videos are more likely to stay on a video for a little bit longer, whereas people that aren't or that is just one of many interests, they will quickly turn it off if there's nothing too quick. So that's why on the videos, after my intro, it goes straight into some sort of action shot. People are like, oh, okay, what's this? And then they might want to watch it. Whereas if it's just my face for 10 seconds, then uh, they might go, no thanks, see you later,
0: and go. Who knows, give it enough time, Ben, they'll be like, oh, it's the BWF. Influencer. Yeah, well, you
2: can get to that stage. If you're famous, it doesn't matter. You could pretty much get away with anything. So if obviously yeah. these get a bit of traction, maybe that could change, but I still think that you need to kind of keep it moving, keep it exciting. Don't stay in one place for too long. Mm-hmm. It's quite easy to do on the videos I'm doing, because they're very short, but if you're trying to make YouTube where they're a bit longer, then it, you need to really consider that because people will shut off within the first 10 to 15 seconds if they're not interested.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's great advice. And we'll take that advice for our video editing in the future as well. But for those listening, that's some advice for you if you plan on becoming an influencer as well, <laughs> like like Ben Beckman.
2: I know BDF, they are looking for more people. So if you're listening to this and you think maybe you've got what it takes, well, they can contact me if they want. I can maybe put them in touch or if they can send me anything, then if it's good, then I can maybe pass it on because I know they're looking to grow this BDF community, which is what this thing is part of. So anyone listening that thinks they can be interesting, create these kind of cool videos it doesn't have to be similar to mine it could be about anything there was a indonesian player bellatrix manu i can't say her name but you know she was a former player for indonesia women's singles player and her one is all about fashion and she's got clips from instagram of when the players are not in their bands again it's not something that i find personally interesting but that's, they're looking for a broad spectrum of things so if you think you've got anything you can offer yeah they can get in touch with me on social media or whatever and maybe it will come of something. Awesome.
1: Show them what you got. I just remembered the Rick and Morty episode where there's a planet, um, the music competition and he's like, show me what you've got. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know if Ben,
0: does Ben watch Rick and Morty? <laughs> I, I,
2: I have watched all of Rick and Morty, but it's been such a long time. I'm trying to think of that one, but I have, I do enjoy Rick and Morty.
0: It's essentially like a, a planet of heads, like the head shaped planets and they're trying to take over the world. Oh, okay. And, and there's, basically the each planet that they go to before they destroy it they give them an opportunity to i think win a music competition is and that what it is if they was, yeah? if
1: they win then yeah. they don't get destroyed
2: oh, okay i think, yeah. Yeah, I think that, that is ringing a bell i mean i can't remember it exactly but it does it is ringing some bells in my head
1: and the big head <laughs> is like show me what you got yeah <laughs> anyway this is this is completely off topic anyway so <laughs> so ben what are your thoughts about worldwide badminton moving forward now? So we've had the coronavirus, we've had Denmark open, we've had the German Solar Lux. I don't know if I'm saying yeah. that right. But no tournaments yet this year and for the rest of the year in 2020. What do you see as the, the future for the new age of badminton after COVID or during COVID even?
2: Um, so what do you think? What kind of changes that BRF might implement
1: i mean one thing do you think anything going to stick around do you think that not shaking hands is going to stick around do you think certain things Ooh, yeah
2: I, f- I think that might do i don't know i think it will be i think there might be some players that do it some players that don't i don't quite know whether that will mm. stick i think because obviously if you didn't play those tournaments your experience would always be to shake hands and i think that was always going to be a, a thing I really liked it, the Denmark Open. I really liked the, the shuttle tubes that they got to take things from. I think and I was speaking to Toby Penzi, who played in that event when he got back, and he said that it's so much better, so much faster. And he said it makes a pretty cool sound when it comes out. So he quite liked it. <laughs> I think it just looks better. I think also it just makes the whole, the time between the points was quicker because of it, because they weren't walking towards the service judge and then coming back. They just take it from the side. So I think that might stick around in the big events. Obviously, in the small ones, they probably, I, I don't know whether they will, but I think at the big events, I think they will do that. Any other changes? I don't think there's going to be too much different. I'm just hopeful that obviously next year, there's a plan for tournaments to come back. Obviously, beginning with the tournaments in Thailand. I just hope that they can go ahead and that um, the tournaments can lead up. And obviously, we can have the Olympics next year as well, because... I think everyone wants to watch the Bantamton Olympics. It's always such a great event to watch. As far as Bantam changing, yeah, I think the, the shuttle tubes, but I can't see much else changing, to be honest.
0: Yeah, definitely with the with the shuttle tubes, Jeff and I talked about it with Felix on another episode of the podcast. It does certainly, from my perspective, it does add a degree of professionalism when you're actually watching it compared to the umpire passing the shuttle to you. I
2: actually never thought of that, but that's, that's a very good point. Yeah, it does visually just look, it does look much better. I agree with that, definitely.
0: And speaking of the Olympics, Ben, now Jeff and I actually had an episode, I don't know how far along this episode was, we were placing bets on uh, who would win men's singles, women's singles, mixed doubles, men's doubles, and women's doubles. Now, we might as well add you into the mix. So, Ooh. who are your top picks? It's so hard now. Like, you know what's <laughs> happening. It is a hard
1: one because <laughs> I know. who
2: knows what's going to happen when players come back. I think let's start with a, a relatively easy one. Men's singles, I think. It's going to be very hard to look past Kento Emota. He yep. is by far the best sure. singles player. I know he's been out for longer than anyone else. It'll be a year between since he last played. But when he came back from you know, his ban because of going to a casino in Japan, he very quickly went up to world number one almost within a year and won the world championship. So I don't think a long extended period of time off for him will, I think almost because everyone else has been off, it will actually help him. I think I think he's going to end up benefiting from this and he won't be so tired by the time the Olympics comes. Because if it happened this year, he was taking time off after Malaysia anyway to rest and recover and to make sure that he's ready for that that run, whereas now he's going to come in fresh and he won't play so many tournaments and he'll be my pick for the men's singles. There's only one player that potentially could beat him, which is Ginting, but I don't think, I think Momoto will win the men's singles. Um, the rest of the events are pretty hard. I think mixed, I think it's going to get Zheng Shiwei and one Ya They proved at the big events that they seem to come through. Obviously, there are some pairs that could beat them. If the Indonesian pair, Jordan and Octavianti, can play as well as they did at the All England, then they've definitely got a chance to win. But it's difficult to look past either of those Chinese pairs, and possibly it could be an All-Chinese final. Women's doubles, oh, the other three events are really hard. Women's doubles really could be any of those pairs in the top five, top 10.
1: Top 10, yeah, I think.
2: Exactly, the top 10. Women's singles could be the same, really, if you look at it. I'd be hard pushed. I mean, I think Tai if she's playing her best, if every player played at their best, Tai is very difficult to overlook. PV Sindhu always plays really well at big events. She finally turned a silver into a gold at the Worlds. So maybe she could do the same at the Olympics. Obviously, Marin, the two Japanese players. Whoever's playing well out of that, I know that sounds obvious, but I think at the top of the
0: women... I think that's a fair comment. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a fair comment.
2: If one of them has that exceptional tournament, they'll win. And it could be any of them. And then in men's doubles, obviously I'd like to say that uh, Gideon and Sukumoyo are the favorites, being number one in the world and by quite some margin, they've been so dominant. But they've been a bit flaky in some of the big events, especially at the Worlds. They haven't got past, they've only medaled in the last three World Championships. So I think they're going to feel the pressure at the big games. Obviously, they've been struggling to beat the Japanese pair that are playing very well, Endo and Watanabe. Mm, Yeah. But then you can't overlook... Asan and One, you can't overlook. You know, the Chinese, this again, I think it's going to be, I think actually the doubles might depend a lot on the draw. Because I think if Union Super Mario can get a little bit favorable and get into the later stages, once they get semi-finals onwards, they're very hard to beat. So I know I haven't picked a winner there. I Personally, who I'd like to win is actually Asan and Setiawan. That's who I'd like to win. But whether they will win, we'll have to see. Um so really out of the events, I think only men's singles, I'd, I'd be confident at making a prediction and possibly mixed as well with the Chinese. The others, I think, are far too close to cool. You guys got a,
0: what's been said?
1: Similar things, but Henry's got some strange thoughts about some events that I didn't agree with.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, well, we gave you a limit of gold, as me and Jeff. were. of a gold. bronze
1: and we had to pick uh, it. Right. Yeah, we said, oh, we're not sure. We just had to pick one. Uh, okay. So, yeah. yeah.
2: You want me just to pick one?
1: No, no. It's a good, okay. it's a good discussion point. Just, just you talking about it makes me miss seeing all the competition again.
2: Yeah. I think we'll, we'll have a clearer idea when badminton starts. You'll get to have a sea of, not right away, not in January, but by March, April time, you'll start to see who's in that kind of position to compete at the Olympics. it would be interesting the first three or four months of, of next year if badminton goes ahead as, as hoped. You'll start to see who's really uh, in a position to win at the Olympics.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely excited for it. Me too.
1: So we've got some questions here directly from the followers of our Instagram channel. We're just going to read them out. So the first one is from Jojo G, and she asks, "What is your daily routine like?" So I guess we can ask you from a perspective of when you're a player, what was your daily routine like, and then maybe what your daily routine like is as a BWF influencer.
2: Okay. As a player. I would get up relatively early. I was always quite good at getting up early in the morning. I'd get up around half past five, six o'clock, because where I trained was about a half an hour, 40 minute drive away. So I'd get to training about seven in the morning, half seven. Usually training with the coach and the other players began at nine, but I would always do some extra, whether it was on the treadmill or shadow was a big part of it because I always felt that that really helped me. I think I mentioned that in the last time I was okay. on this podcast. So I'd always spend a good 45 minutes doing something extra. And then we train from like 9 to 11, 11.30 on court. And then it'd be, obviously we'd lunch and then we'd train again in the afternoon. And then when I was playing, I had to supplement a lot, of my, a lot of my costs with coaching. So I'd finish training at half two, three o'clock, maybe four o'clock. And then for the next three, four hours, I'd be coaching. And then I'd go home, wind down, probably actually watch badminton. You know, I was around it all the time. And go to bed, and then repeat. So it was like most people that are athletes; it's not the most exciting life. It's very repetitive and regimented, but that's what you kind of had to do. So, you know, get up early, get there, train a little bit, do the main session, break, make another session, coaching just to earn some money and to be able to afford to go abroad, come back. Either just watch what I, you know, any shows or anything, or generally for me, I watched more Babson because you know I was kind of obsessed with it and actually quite enjoyed doing that. And obviously, trying to learn from the best in the world, go to bed and then repeat. Not the most exciting <laughs> life, but
0: it's definitely prepared you for being a BWF influencer and looking at all these videos. So, let's talk about that and what your daily routine is like now.
2: So, what my daily routine is obviously, it depends day to day, but in general. Again, I get up very early because uh, I get up around five in the morning. That's because me and my wife, we like to do our physical training before work and before I have to take my steps down to school. So we usually in our front room now, we do insanity or some sort of hit training uh, in front of the TV uh, for about 45 minutes, maybe an hour, some some mornings. You know then I'd kind of get ready, coffee, all that kind of stuff, take my steps under school. And then either I go to the club where I coach or I come back. Most mornings, I'll come back and I'll spend a morning working on a video, editing it or writing down ideas or whatever, sending emails and just checking in with a guy that I work alongside. And then really the rest of the day would be spent either doing more coaching, whether at the school that I work at or private coaching or... Whatever. And then it's, I also do housework. <laughs> I gotta got kind of, if I'm at home more than my wife, I, I kind of feel like I have to. And then the evening is spent doing nothing, watching Netflix or, or Amazon, just absolutely nothing to do at work and just completely shutting off and then getting ready for the next day. So it's similar in the fact that get up early, train a little bit, but obviously the train's not so much. And then it's just, instead of training, I've just switched it with coaching or working on the video.
1: So and then at nighttime, if you're watching Amazon, watching the Carolina Marion documentary, have you seen it on Amazon?
2: I haven't watched that yet, but I, I do intend to actually watch it because I've watched the trailer uh, and it looks really interesting and I'm very interested to do it. I actually wanted to do a video on it. And when I pitched the idea, the only issue the guy saw was that not everyone will have access to Amazon, especially in some of the Asian countries. So maybe it's something that they, no one could relate to. It'd also be very hard to get any footage from it to actually make the video Worthwhile, so. But I, once I watch it, I'll see whether I can, because I would love to, because I think it tells. From what I can see, the trailer. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's good. Is it? Is it good? Okay, so I, I might even watch it this afternoon. <laughs> got a, bit, a bit of time, I
0: <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so now Ben, we're going to ask you another question from one of our followers. This one comes from Matt Hughes. It is badminton related. It's unrelated to being a BWF influencer it's unrelated to what's been going on recently so his question is would you have done anything different if you were to go for badminton again in another life
2: yes i would there's there's plenty that i would do differently i wouldn't go into everything my number one would be that when i was coached when i was playing when i first got out of juniors and i was training to be um, an international player i kind of reached a limit at the club that i was training at I was the best player. There were a few other really good players around me, you know, and they were very good friends of mine. But I felt that if I could go back, if I could do it again, I would have tried to get myself at the national center more, you know, training with the Raj Rusefs and Carl Baxter. And when I was kind of at that point, it was actually when Kenneth Yonison came um to England. So it wasn't that I didn't go there, but I would have made a decision to pretty much uproot and move myself to Milton Keynes as much as I could have done I also maybe if that hadn't worked out I always trained and got very good from the training in Asia I'm not sure whether just their style suited me Mm -hmm. you know they're very physically and demanding and you know very hard in the training and you know that's something I really liked and when I I went out there to Malaysia for a couple of months a couple of times I always came back playing so much better so I think if I could go again I might even tempted to move there or at least every summer or for a good period, whenever I had a long period of tournaments, go there and train, because that's something I think would have improved my game. The only other thing would be, I wish I'd just listened to myself more. I had a coach, who, he was good. He did teach me a lot of the basics. Then he became a little bit controlling what how we wanted to play. So I always ended up kind of doubting the style that I played. Hard to kind of explain that fully, but that's how it felt. And I wish now when I stopped and when I kind of, play a little bit now because I think more for myself and I've just kind of matured and got to know myself better I wish I could have developed that when I was still playing and I guess lastly I wouldn't have stopped as early as I did I would have just kind of kept with it you know obviously you have some everyone I think has a few regrets and for me one of them is stopping when I did as much as it was a it's been a good decision in terms of where my life is now but as far as Banton, I think I could have kept going a little bit longer. So I wish I hadn't thrown in the towel when I did. The main takeaway would have been just to try to get out of where I was training to try and train with better players. That would be something that I would definitely uh, change if I could go back and do it again. Sure.
1: And that question from Matt Hughes, a former Welsh doubles player with Martin Lewis, very good Welsh player and I think top 20 in the world or, form very, very well. So, just a quick add on question there, Ben, would you have ever switched to men's doubles? Uh, no. You've got to live it again. No. <laughs> no.
2: <laughs> My skill set lies in singles. It's not that I wouldn't like to rely on someone, but it kind of is as well. I uh, quite like being like only really questionable to myself. Like, so in doubles, especially, I mean, England is better at doubles, but. From what I've seen at the National Center, it's very quick. If you're not doing so well, they can just change your partner very quickly. So you could feel like you're doing all this work, you build up a partnership, and then you're at the mercy of the selectors, and they could change it on that. Whereas singles, obviously, it's just solely you. Singles is harder, but I like that. I'm just a singles player. I, I'm not a doubles player. So I don't think I'd ever, ever choose doubles over singles. Never. So no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't switch. I would do it no matter how hard it is. Yeah. I would keep picking singles.
1: <laughs> okay. There you go, Matt. Just just <laughs> in case you had that question, cause you're a doubles player. <laughs> and then the last question that we have was from Shiketa Debole, and she is from Trinidad and Tobago. We spoke to her just recently and she's asking the million dollar question, which you may have some really good answers for, including what you're doing with the BWF as an influencer. But the question is, do you have any ideas about how badminton can be a more mainstream sport in other continents, such as like the Pan Americas, the Africas, even the Oceanias here?
2: That's a difficult question (laughs) to answer. I think we kind of spoke about this a little bit on the last podcast when I was with Swift. That was kind of the goal um, was to make badminton, I think some of the players, you know, Victor Apson's and Anders and they got a YouTube channel making players more as a personality rather than just as a player. So you get to learn what they're like off the court, what it's like on tour, all this kind of thing. In terms of making it bigger in those continents, those places, I said that's gonna take years and years and years to build that up. I'm not sure I have an answer, if I'm honest, for that one. People like myself, I think I can have a small impact. Maybe hopefully it'll get bigger as I develop you know, the videos and what I'm trying to do. But maybe it would take a few people in my role from those places to get a feel for badminton all around the world and their opinions and their thoughts and all that and just generate a little bit of excitement. Maybe, this is just an off remark, that air badminton might be more accessible for some of these people. I mean, air badminton is just badminton in Indonesia because they play outside all the time. But that could be some a way into the sport. Those kind of countries, they don't have the facilities. Some of them, but they have good weather, or they have the ability to house a court outside. It gets people watching it, and they go, "You know, what's this?" Oh, there's another sport that's just like it, badminton, and they kind of get into it that way. So, I actually think air badminton might have a little bit of an impact. But to reach more people, I think we just got to kind of keep creating these personalities with the top players in the world and people that know the sport. I said this last time. Your examples are your podcasts reaching people all over the world and just growing the sport that way i think it's going to be very difficult to make it mainstream mainstream i'm not saying it's impossible but it's an uphill battle against some of the other sports that do dominate you know your footballs and those kind of sports that dominate those kind of places mm-hmm. personally i would try and do my bit with the videos i create and i just hope there's other people like me and you know people that are doing things in their own communities to try and grow badminton so if everyone does a little bit then maybe we can get there
0: yeah i think we as a collective, need to continue to chip away at it, whether that be you know, you as a... I feel like I'm saying influencer way too much on this podcast episode. (laughs) You as a BWF influencer and us with our podcast and other YouTube channels and, and other podcasts out there, all sorts of content to help grow the sport is required. But I guess we need to look at badminton as a bigger picture. What about badminton as a brand? And certainly, what about badminton players as a brand and as role models for others as well? So, there's going to be so many factors, right?
2: Yeah. There's one thing I can say. I mean, I don't know the details, but speaking to the guy yesterday from BWF, they have got a digital plan in mind, you know, a kind of way to grow badminton online. And obviously, you know, they've started to roll out this, I won't call it influence again, but this BWF community, that that's probably a way to put it. So that encapsulates not just the stuff I'm doing, but you know some of the other stuff they want to get out there. Obviously, that includes their online shows and live broadcasts and all this kind of thing. So they have got a plan in mind. I don't know what it is, but I, I think that's going to go a big way towards getting Banton more viewed by people that aren't just involved with it or like it, but people that maybe never heard of it before. I think that's definitely something that BWF are looking at because there's never been that big a social media presence. I think they're making a real big push to try and increase that, which is obviously you know where we are in the in the 21st century, so hopefully in the next few years we'll start to see more fruits of that labor and Pamson can grow.
0: Yeah, absolutely and we hope to see you be a big involvement, big part of that as well. So if we do have listeners out there and they want to see some of your videos. They want to see some of that content, that awesome content that you're creating now with a bit of humor, that bit of swift touch to it. Where can they find you?
2: Well, so they can find me on Instagram. My handle is at Ben underscore Beckman underscore BWF. I don't necessarily put the videos up there myself because they will go up on the BWF's official Facebook and Instagram channel. I'm not on Twitter. So I think they sometimes put links to things on that. I don't quite no I haven't been active on social media to be honest for the last year or so I'm slowly trying to kind of put myself back out there but I will put up things out there that will say the video is now live on the BDF channel because I have to kind of wait a period of time before I can use it on my own channel it's just something that they have in place so really if you want to watch my videos it's mainly on their Facebook but they will also sometimes put it on Instagram as well so make sure that you follow them
0: yeah great All right, listeners, so make sure you check those out. And so, Ben, this is our second podcast together and hopefully not the last one. Hopefully we'll get you come back on at some point because we do love chatting to you. But thank you once again for being on The Badminton Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. Thanks, Ben. So from Henry and I at The Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too. Because with your help, we can show the world how incredible
0: badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at The Badminton Podcast, and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback, or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.